0: I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we're airing the first episode of a new podcast series we created with James Madison's Montpelier called American Descent. So, how do you dissent? That's the question the podcast producer Kelly Libby asked on Twitter a few months back, and she got a number of responses, from someone who teaches other teachers about racism to someone who's suing the government to someone who fights against white supremacy in Charlottesville. So Kelly started asking scholars about moments in American history when people challenge the status quo. Together, the stories she collected represent one of the defining features of American society. In a moment, we have that first podcast episode, but first a conversation with the series producer. I have Kelly Libby with me now. Kelly, tell me about how you went about producing American Descent.
1: Well, in our tagline, we say it's a podcast series about we the people pushing back in the pursuit of a better America. So the series tells stories of everyday people who see an injustice and decide to do something about it, not because they're trying to upset other people, but because they're trying to create social change. There's, of course, no way to tell the complete story of dissent in America in just five episodes. But the idea was to highlight some stories, um, both historical and contemporary, that would educate young people about what we think is a civic duty and right, and to also offer some inspiration. Like, if you're feeling like you wanna make change in your community, here are some examples of people who did just that. Why'd you focus on dissent? So the series is a collaboration with James Madison's Montpelier. And James Madison is, of course, the fourth president of the United States And he's also known as the father of the Constitution. He played a critical role in designing the government of our country. So we wanted to focus on a topic where we could explore connections to constitutional history, but also one that would feel relevant to young people today.
0: Why young people?
1: Well, it seems to me that a lot of revolutions have been led by young people, right? Um, As our colleague Justin Reed points out, young people, and maybe it's their naivete, They tend not to dwell on the reasons why not to do something, they just do it. And we actually interviewed Justin for a story that comes later in the series about this group of teenagers, some as young as 12 years old, who were really at the front lines of the civil rights movement in this country. So we wanted to tell stories that would sort of arm young people, especially high school students, with knowledge and history and inspiration. And so if there are teachers listening to this episode, we hope this series can be useful to you in your classrooms. But this series is for anyone. I mean, I certainly learned a lot by producing it.
0: You know, that's a good point about how young people are often in the forefront of dissent or protest, even revolution. What are some examples of the kind of young people and their dilemmas who you featured?
1: Well, what you'll hear in this first episode is the story of a woman who's been thinking about the deaths of unarmed black men at the hands of police, and has this moment where she decides to call attention to the issue. And in the next episode, we tell two different stories about young people taking legal action against the government to change unjust policies.
0: Was there anything that surprised you as you are putting together the series?
1: Hmm. Just, like, the bits of history I had either forgotten or never learned in the first place. So did you know the First Amendment, which protects freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, um, this amendment that we revere so much today, it wasn't the First Amendment when the Bill of Rights was first drafted. The only reason it's the First Amendment today is because the first two amendments that were proposed weren't ratified by the states. And that makes me wonder, like, how would society be different today If our very First Amendment was not about free speech, but about how the size of the House of Representatives is determined.
0: For people who want to listen to the whole podcast series, where should they go?
1: So episodes drop on September 17th. That's Constitution Day. And listeners can find it on Montpelier's website. Or they can subscribe now and get the podcasts in their feeds, in the places where they usually get their podcasts. And for the folks who want to catch the series on the radio, we will be airing episodes in the coming months on With Good Reason. Was it different
0: for you making the podcast series as opposed to making shows for radio, which is what we usually do? Did you get to do a little experimentation?
1: Yes, and this was also our first time partnering with another organization to make a podcast. It just so happens that Montpelier has this awesome new recording studio, so it was fun to make the drive out there. They're about 45 minutes from our studio, and to work with the folks out there. It was also really fun to work with an artist from Richmond named Carson McNamara on the illustrations for the series. There are these really colorful images of young people practicing dissent in various ways, and each episode gets its own illustration. And then it was cool to work with the library of music we got access to from Breakmaster Cylinder. So shout out to them too. Great. And with that, let's kick off the series. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you.
2: I believe it was like a cheerleader singing it. like Or two, one or two cheerleaders is like the song played and like these two cheerleaders sang it. So it was like a, a live <laughs> version of the national anthem. When it started to play, we all, me, my team and my coach, uh, all lined up on the baseline and our back was to the the flag. it was on the wall closest to us and when it started to play, it felt like I couldn't move basically. like something inside of me really wouldn't let me move. And in my head, I was thinking, like, well, you could just, you know, take two steps and you're, like, basically facing it just like everyone else. But it just kind of felt like I, I couldn't.
1: Do you, do you remember feeling self-conscious? Um, a little bit. I think I was just kind of
2: worried. I knew that there was going to be some type of negative reaction. I didn't know if it was going to be more passive, like it would come in an email and then my athletic director would have a conversation with me or it would be more aggressive, I guess, like it was with people yelling and coming to my coach and stuff like that. So that was kind of like, do they want to go this way or this way? And then kind of as I was thinking about that, I had to tell myself, like, wait a minute, Tori, you have 100% the right to do this, like, You're doing what you want, and you are doing it for a good reason, and you shouldn't have to worry about getting in trouble. And even if you do get in trouble, well, you shouldn't, (laughs) because this is what you can do, and it's what you will do.
1: This is American Dissent, a podcast from With Good Reason and James Madison's Montpelier about pushing back in the pursuit of a better America. I'm Kelly Libby. Dissent gets a bad rap. It gets dismissed as troublemaking just for the sake of making trouble. But throughout American history, everyday people have recognized injustice and decided they had to do something about it. And in doing something, they've shaped a nation. The woman you just heard from? Her name is Tori Carter Johnston. I'll get back to her story in a bit. But first, I wanted to know some of the history behind the First Amendment to our Constitution, because that's the one that guarantees our right to exercise free speech, and also establishes a separation of church and state. So I want to take us back to 18th century Virginia, to a community of, at the time, marginalized people who were persecuted for their beliefs, and whose dissent had a profound effect on our lives today.
3: These are devout evangelical Christians. It's important to remember that. We, we tend not to associate evangelical Christians and separation of church and state today. These people are, are very passionate about their religion.
1: This is John Ragosta, a historian at the International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello and author of a book called Wellspring of Liberty. And what John told me is that before the American Revolution, before our Constitution was drafted, There were these evangelical Christians, mostly Baptists and Presbyterians, who pushed for freedom of religion and separation of church and state at a time when most citizens were forced by the government to be Anglican. What were some of the worst of the persecutions?
3: you know, they, they would uh, take Baptists in particular out to the closest pond or river they could find, and they would dunk them in the river in parody of their immersion baptism and hold them underwater. In one case, they held somebody underwater till he almost drowned, and they'd pull him up and say, Do you believe? Do you believe? And They'd hold him underwater again. Uh, in other cases, they would throw rocks. In cases, they were shot at. Uh, one of these dissenting ministers had the foxhounds set on him. Uh, In one case, they throw a wasp nest, a hornet's nest, into a prayer meeting. In another case, history says they threw a snake into this prayer meeting. It's almost certainly a copperhead, a mean venomous snake in this part of Virginia.
1: But the Baptists in Virginia kept growing in number, and the Anglican establishment kept trying to put a stop to it. John says that by the time of the American Revolution, More than half of the Baptist ministers in Virginia had suffered jail time for preaching. But they used it to their advantage, to spread the gospel.
3: They learned very quickly that being jailed was an opportunity for religious witness. And so if you're trying to convert people and tell people that you're a sincere Christian, the fact that you're in jail and you're still a believer is a powerful witness. So they would preach from their jail cell. And sometimes people would gather outside their jail cell to hear these people preach. Well, sometimes people would come through on horseback with horse whips and whip people listening to these preaching out of these jail cells. Uh, in some cases, they would simply sing obscene songs. In some cases, they are known to—the uh, minister would be preaching from a jail cell partially below ground. Uh, they would be urinated on in their face as they're trying to preach. In one case, uh, Weatherford, a minister, Baptist minister, is preaching with his arms outstretched from from the windows of his jail cell on prayer, and they come up on his right and left with knives and cut his arms because he's preaching. But what happens, uh, One of the early politicians says, it's almost like stepping on a bed of chamomile. And chamomile's famous, if you step on it, it just grows more and more and more. Uh, And they said the problem with persecuting these religious dissenters is the more we persecute them, the more we get. These are people who believe your central commitment is to God, and you have to have a personal relationship with God. And when you die, you're going to be in front of the judgment seat and you're going to be responsible to God and no one else for your behavior. And if government is somehow interfering in that behavior, it's really interfering with your religion.
1: Uh huh. And so, how was government interfering with that? personal relationship with God?
3: Um, we know that in Virginia, there is a religious tax to pay the Anglican minister and to make give the Anglican minister a home. So if you're Baptist or Presbyterian, Quaker, Lutheran, you are paying taxes to support the Anglican minister. But it went much beyond that. Um, you could be prosecuted and pay fines or even jailed for failing to attend church regularly. If you died and your children were orphaned, the Anglican Church decided who would care for those children. So if you were a Baptist uh, and you died, your children would be placed in a good Anglican home. We don't want them raised a Baptist. Um, so there are all of these things going on. You had to be married in the Anglican Church. If you're married by a Baptist minister without permission of an Anglican minister, your children are bastards. And that has legal consequences in 18th century Virginia. Uh, The other thing that was very significant was these dissenting groups uh, were more open to African-Americans and to women. So you would occasionally see an African-American minister as a Baptist because what made you a minister as a Baptist was if the spirit moved you. So you could be an African-American minister. You could even be an enslaved minister. You could be a woman and be a minister if the spirit moved you. And so that's also challenging authority. Well, then the American Revolution starts. And suddenly, overnight, this all changes. Because if somewhere between one-fifth and one-third of the people in Virginia are dissenters, and you're going to war with the world's most powerful empire, the British Empire, You need these people. And so very early in 1775, 1776, we start to see these Anglican religious leaders and political leaders say we have to get these people's support. Uh, We especially want the support of those Presbyterians from the Shenandoah Valley because they have rifles and they can hit a squirrel at 100 yards. We need these people. So if we need these people, how are we going to do it? Well, these dissenters started to write petitions to the uh, new independent legislature, the convention, and then the Virginia General Assembly, saying not that we want you to stop persecuting us, but we want religious freedom.
1: By that, they meant they wanted an end to the religious tax and an end to Anglican marriages. They wanted their ministers to be exempted from military service, just like the Anglican ministers.
3: And then these petitions would say, these things granted, or this being done, we will always support the state against tyrannical efforts of the British Empire.
1: For years, the colonial legislature had ignored these petitions asking for religious freedom. But the new, independent Virginia legislature, they started granting it.
3: So in 1776, the religious tax, that suddenly is suspended. In 1779, it's eliminated. We start to see dissenting ministers are exempted from military service in 1776, 1777. So all of these things start to change. We used to say that freedom-loving Americans were fighting against the British, and of course religious freedom was going to be part of that. But there's no of course. Uh, Religious freedom really was made part of the American Revolution by these evangelical dissenters saying, if you want us to fight, then you've got to give us religious freedom, no more of this garbage where we're, we're being treated as second-class citizens.
1: I want to take a break here for a quick refresher on the freedoms guaranteed in the First Amendment. There are five. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to assemble peaceably, and freedom to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But none of these freedoms were in the draft of the Constitution before it was ratified, before it was signed off on and made official. In fact, there was no First Amendment at all, and no Bill of Rights. Those came later, and they came in part because of their religious dissenters. See James Madison, who would later become the fourth President of the United States, was at the time the leading advocate for getting a draft of the Constitution ratified in Virginia. But he almost wasn't a part of the ratification convention because he almost didn't get elected. And that's because of the Baptists and Presbyterians in his district, who were concerned that the Constitution didn't talk about religious freedom.
3: And so the Baptists and the Presbyterians started talking among themselves saying, well, maybe we shouldn't support Madison because he helped draft this constitution which doesn't talk about religious freedom.
1: But then James Madison had a meeting that turned the tide. He met with a leading Baptist minister in Virginia named John Leland.
3: Madison assures Leland that he is devoted to religious freedom, he is devoted to separation of church and state, and they will fix this. They will see to it that religious freedom is protected in the new United States. And Leland comes out and tells his Baptist congregants that, yes, let's support James Madison. Uh, Now, would James Madison have ever been elected? Would we have the US Constitution? Would we have the Bill of Rights without these religious dissenters? Maybe not. I forget who said it, but somebody points out that in a totalitarian regime, in a dictatorship, in a monarchy, what we are worried about is the government hurting the rights of the majority. In a democracy, what Madison realizes, and he talks about this very expressly, is we have to protect the minority because the majority can make the laws, right? They can vote people into Congress. If you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Christian, Do you really need to have your religious freedom protected in the 19th century, 20th century Virginia? No, what Madison says is the people who are gonna be persecuted are the dissenters, the Jews, the Muslims, the Hindus. And we see this all the time today. That's why we say black lives matter. Do white lives matter? Of course white lives matter, but that's never been an issue. We say black lives matter because those are the people likely to be facing problems with their civil rights. Um, you know, Kaepernick or anyone else who who wants to take a knee, they're exercising their First Amendment freedom of speech rights. Jefferson and Madison and these evangelical religious people in the 18th century understood that we needed those rights to protect people doing something we don't like. You know, we don't need freedom of speech to protect people when they say things we like. You don't need freedom of speech to protect Star Wars movies that people want to go to anyway. You need freedom of speech, you need freedom of religion, uh, you need freedom of assembly to protect those people who we don't necessarily like.
1: Which brings us back to Tori Carter-Johnston.
2: Um, I identify as female. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I'm a biracial woman. Tori's a recent
1: graduate from a high school in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, is it is it okay? Yep. I'm talking, okay. Um, so I guess, could you start with like what had been happening at school, like what you had been learning about? <clears throat> um, At
2: school... I think there was a lot. There was definitely a lot of talk about the whole Colin Kaepernick situation because it was very new at the time. Um, And it was just at the beginning of it. So it was still like kind of it was more controversial. People were kind of figuring out how they felt about it.
1: Night, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refusing to stand during the national anthem
3: again. The 49ers quarterback refusing to stand for the national anthems for four games. Fans protesting uh, his jersey. They're burning it.
0: You Once see some again, right there. We have cops that are murdering people. We have cops in the SFPD that are blatantly racist.
2: And those issues need to be And this is also at the Kind of the peak of this whole police brutality thing.
3: This country, this weekend, hundreds were arrested in ongoing protests over police shootings of black we citizens. We we largely peaceful in several cities, the Tori
1: told me her school She's holds a speaker series, and every Friday, they invite someone from the community, a parent, an alum, to share something with the whole school. And um, I think a woman came in
2: and just basically talked to us about our rights, what qualifies as free speech, stuff like that. Um, And then the Colin Kaepernick thing came up and it was like, who's to say that what he's doing is wrong because he's, you know, using his free speech. Um, And that's just what got me thinking about it. I mean, I've already, I'd already been thinking about it, but it got me thinking about actually doing it. And then
1: later that day, I just happened to have a volleyball game. And that's where she made the decision to protest. Tori says when the national anthem started and everyone in the gym turned to face the flag, she kept her feet planted. The first pushback came during the game. Um, I heard
2: some yells from the stands of, I guess a a parent or just somebody watching and uh, they said my number was number 10 and they would say things like get 10 off the court like she shouldn't be playing stuff like that get out the gym things of that nature Um, and I got a lot of (laughs) ugly stares especially when I came close to the side of the uh, of the benches where the crowd was And then after the game, uh, I guess the guy who was yelling or did most of the yelling during the game went over to my coach. And I could kind of hear him saying, like, you need to kick her
1: off the team, like she shouldn't be playing, stuff like that. After the game, Tori says, the athletic director of the other team called her school's athletic director and said that if a protest happened again, their team would forfeit. That sparked a conference of all the athletic directors in the league. It definitely was a little weird to think about that, like, this whole
2: conference of a bunch of like 30, 40 year old men just like sitting around a table uh, talking about me and like what I had done, and because of what I had done, what the league is going to do in the future.
1: Ultimately, Tori's team had to make some compromises. So, for instance, Some teams would play Tori's team as long as her team left the gym during the national anthem. And it
2: kind of felt like it was getting to a point where people were trying to say, even if they weren't saying it directly, or they would, they're kind of basically being like, why don't you just give up? Or like, why don't you just take what you got and just go with it? You already made your statement, stuff like that.
1: But something else happened as a result of Tori's protest her school held an inaugural Summit on Diversity and invited other schools in the area to attend, including the schools in her league. I think it, if it even if it's not a huge ripple effect, there was little waves
2: <laughs> over everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. When Tori's decision to protest police brutality was met with roadblocks, she says she felt frustrated and even angry at times.
2: But at the end of the day, we're talking about it. And I'm talking about how I feel. And they're talking about how they feel. And even if we're probably not going to come to a 100% agreement, but at least in their mind, they're going to remember this time in their life when you know, they had to talk about this girl who's doing her activism at your school. And like this is how she felt about it. I don't know it it also felt a little personal at times because like people will hate me for how I look and I'm I'm a mixed race person and people will hate that about me so for me it was just kind of like I understand that you feel frustrated about this but there are people in this world who are literally dying because people hate them so much for basically no reason. So if you're offended by my demonstration, I'm sorry, but I'm still gonna do it.
0: What you just heard is part one of a new podcast series called american descent you can find the full series at montpelier.org or wherever you get your podcasts american descent is a co-production with james madison's montpelier the artwork is by carson mcnamara the music is by breakmaster cylinder special thanks to price thomas and kendall madigan at james madison's montpelier This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. For more than 44 months, my next guest, Colin Rafferty, read a biography of every single president up to Donald Trump. And then Rafferty, a writer and professor at the University of Mary Washington, wrote his own stories about each of these men. Ranging from stream-of-conscious narratives to songs to medical diagnoses, Rafferty's Presidential Essays Collection gives us an unusually intimate look at American history. Colin, you've written an essay about every president of the United States. Why? What started you off? Well,
4: I moved to Virginia in 2008, and I had grown up in Kansas and had gone to graduate school in Alabama, and both of those states are, in terms of presidential history, Kansas has Dwight D. Eisenhower. Alabama has Rufus King, who was vice president for about a month and a half, and I moved suddenly to Virginia, and I was surrounded by presidents, and I realized that I couldn't name all the presidents in order. There were about 44 months until the next presidential election. There had been 44 presidents, and so if I read one presidential biography a month, I could have one read by the time the next election rolled around. So I went ahead and did that. And having 44 presidents gave me 44 subjects to try out nonfiction forms.
0: There is the Van Buren essay where you talk about him playing with the Jackson children in the White House. Could you read from some of that essay? I can.
4: And one of the setups that you have to to know for this essay is that Van Buren was a widower in the White House. His wife had passed away beforehand. So there is a story about Christmas 1835 in the Jackson White House. Vice President Van Buren plays games of tag with the Jackson children. And at one point, he must stand on one leg and chant, here I stand all ragged and dirty. If you don't come kiss me, I'll run like a turkey. No one does. And so the man who will be president-elect by next Christmas runs after the children like the bird, strutted like a game gobbler in search of a mate. The thing I really like about the Turkey story is that it humanizes Van Buren. And maybe that was the the kind of great thing about this this reading project and then this writing project was that it was a way to conceive of the presidents, especially the lesser-known presidents, as human beings who had existed and they had lives and loves and flaws and complications that made them into real people rather than just faces on a placemat or wax statues in a museum.
0: Can you pull from some of your essays, one essay per president, some of the favorite details that you were able to write about that you picked up from your investigation of these biographies?
4: I have a, a kind of fondness for Ch- uh, Chester Allen Arthur, who, if you look up obscure president in the dictionary, he's right there. Yeah. And I love the fact that only two presidents were inaugurated in New York City. One was George Washington. And if you go to New York City, you can go to Federal Hall where he was inaugurated. And it's a National Park Service site. and It has all the pomp and circumstance you might expect from that. But the house where Chester Arthur was inaugurated after uh, James Garfield died is just It's now just a brownstone on Lexington Avenue. There's a grocery store on the lower level, and there's a plaque under plexiglass there that mentions it. But the, the plexiglass itself is almost uh, completely clouded over, and it's difficult to read there. And so I like the idea that like, there are two presidents in New, you know who have this connection to New York City in the beginning of their presidencies. And one we venerate, and the other one we kind of obscure.
0: Did you bring along with you some of your essays to share with us?
4: I did. I brought the Franklin Pierce essay, and it is written in the form of a diagnosis. Patient, 52-year-old white male, married, now childless, 14th President of the United States, who recently suffered trauma in a train wreck after his election. Unbeknownst to his wife, Patient allowed his name to be placed into nomination for the Democratic election. His wife fainted upon hearing the news that he had received the party's nod. After the election, the train carrying the soon-to-be first family derailed near Andover, rolling down an embankment. Patient's only living son was crushed, head almost severed, the body visible to the patient and his wife for quite some time. Patient is a combat veteran, but both he and his wife report great distress over the sight of their mangled son's body, as well as a subsequent sense of separation between them. Patient's wife stays to her own rooms of the executive mansion, dresses in black, does not speak with the public. Diagnosis, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, recognition of the fact of life's fragility, of what can be torn apart in the ordinary moment. Treatment. Diversions to occupy the mind, to push away the image of the son's near-severed head, it never goes away. Anything to occupy the mind and the hand, a hobby, a pastime, a bottle if he must, and he will. As president, he must keep the union from being torn apart despite his failure to save his son. These are desperate times. He is a desperate man. The man and the hour have met.
0: Beautifully done. Thank you. I read your essays about Andrew Jackson and Richard Nixon back to back. The Jackson essay is a little more sympathetic. Tell me about Jackson and your engagement with him.
4: Jackson's a figure by which we can think about America and our, I think, our own relationship to America, that he is this war hero, that he defeats the British in the Battle of New Orleans, but he's also a president who really helps exacerbate the, the genocide of Native Americans in the country and, and certainly re, you know, removes them and famously defies the Supreme Court to effect their removal from, uh, from the Southeast. He is a, um, a figure that we laud, but he's also a figure that I think is, is reviled in, in some corners.
0: With Nixon, you straight up call him a monster in your essay. Is this revealing of how it was different to write about more modern presidents
4: it was. And, and, you know, Nixon was the the first president who died while I was alive. I was born in 1976. And so it, it's strange to think that there was a very long stretch of American history where there were no uh, presidential deaths. Um, and so Nixon was the first president who died. And, and I I was a teenager at the time. And all the, the newspapers talked about how he had been this foreign policy hero. And he had been, you know, he had opened up China. And, and my dad you know, sort of kept saying like, but Bombing of Cambodia, secret wars, and you know Watergate, and and so when when Nixon passed away, that he was this figure that I thought of as as really I think a kind of you know as a kind of monster.
0: It it was personal. There was a personal Mm -hmm. connection for you through the eyes of your parents.
4: Yeah, and and I think you're right about writing about the contemporary presidents. That is, you know, I I wrote my first book about monuments and memorials and their statues that don't move and certainly don't read, and in in writing about living presidents especially, I had this kind of realization that where there was a chance, certainly remote, but a chance nonetheless that the subject I was writing about could theoretically read this. Right. And that was – that suddenly – that added some, some stakes to the game.
0: Throughout this process, taking this deep dive in American history and the many ways putting yourself in the shoes of these men, is there something in particular you have learned, do you think, through the process of writing about all – America's presidents? Lessons you might share with us?
4: I think one of the really interesting aspects of it was to think about American history as a as a continuum, as a as a constantly moving and constantly evolving thing, that there really weren't set periods where everything changed, but instead a kind of steady evolution. And by evolution, I mean, in the very scientific sense of the term, where there are plenty of dead ends and setbacks and mistakes, Hmm. but constantly changing and constantly moving and constantly working towards becoming something else. For example, the Civil War is a great example of this because Martin Van Buren, the eighth president, um, passes away during the Civil War. And every other president up to Teddy Roosevelt, the 26th president, is affected by that. And Teddy Roosevelt's a young boy during the Civil War that he, he remembers seeing Union soldiers marching down Manhattan. And so there's this long stretch where you see everybody from Abraham Lincoln, who's president during the war, to... Uh, Ulysses s grant who's obviously a major general during the Civil War to William McKinley who's a foot soldier in the Civil War that all of these all of these men are affected by this one event and so you keep seeing it from all these different angles and re-experiencing this event over and over and it's a really fascinating way to think about these things same with any war but also same with financial uh, panics and depressions same with uh, movements like the women's rights movements or the civil rights movement that you see them through the eyes of different presidents and you see the 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 movement progressing along.
0: Were there times recently where you've thought back to some of these um, moments in history that parallel what we're going through now and thought, ah, I have some insights into this? Sure. One of the things
4: I had thought about, there was this sense among Republicans that once Trump was elected, that he would sort of fall in line and be reined in. And I thought of Chester Arthur at the time because when Arthur became president after uh, James Garfield had been assassinated, there was this incredible concern that Arthur would be uh, incredibly corrupt. He had a reputation when he was uh, working in the customs office of being on the take. And when he became president, he actually received a series of letters from a private citizen who didn't know him. This woman uh, wrote him and said, the world is looking at you now. You have to she didn't use this language, but you have to step up and, and be the president now. And, and Arthur actually did, instead of being corrupt, he actually ended up reforming the civil service. And it was because this woman had written him and said, you need to do this. And so it was interesting to think about this idea that Trump would be reined in after uh, or f- sort of fall in line with the Republican Party afterwards and seeing that he so far hasn't seemed to have the letter writing happen yet to him. Maybe someone, Maybe the right person hasn't tweeted him yet.
0: We just have enough time for one more look at one of your essays, and I'd love to look at the one you wrote about Barack Obama. Was this the final essay you wrote?
4: It was until election night, actually. Um, and then after the election, I had a kind of crisis moment where I didn't know what to do. I wasn't quite <laughs> sure at all like what I, what, I would, what I would write, and I was thinking about all the things that presidents were involved with, and I realized that the Hall of Presidents at Disney World would have to shut down for a while and install a Trump animatronic figure. And so I wrote an essay about that process, right? How the, the Imagineers at Disney World go about creating a presidential figure and installing it and, and perhaps the temptation that they might have to create a different version of the president who would speak in the Hall of Presidents.
0: Ha! Huh. Do you mean create him in an image they wanted as opposed to what they thought he was?
4: Right, right. I mean, I think in a way that's maybe the the biographer and the historian and the writer's temptation as well, that there's a a desire to kind of try to make them in the image that you want to make them, that what what you see and what you create is what you want to see. And then that has to be a a kind of really difficult process for the the imagineers and and for historians and biographers to do is to to figure out how to show the president or your subject or whoever as a, a complicated human being even when you're building a robot version of them.
0: Well, Colin Rafferty, this is fascinating, beautiful job. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason.
4: Thank you, I appreciate it.
0: Colin Rafferty is a writer and professor at the University of Mary Washington. Coming up next, the generation that invented grandparents. The first presidents lived much longer than you might expect, most of them surviving into their 80s or even 90s. Rebecca Brannon is an historian at James Madison University, and she says the founding fathers grappled with the same kinds of fears and frustrations that come with getting old today.
5: It's amazing how long these first presidents lived. George Washington lives to 67, and he's the shortest-lived of the early presidents. John Adams will live into his 90s. Thomas Jefferson, the third president, will live into his 80s. They will outlive wives. They will outlive their friends. Was it
0: unusual for them to outlive wives?
5: Men just lived longer in the 18th century than women. Today, of course— You go to a nursing home and you're likely to see a lot of women who have outlived their husbands. Uh, But back then, repeated childbearing was so hard on women that they had shorter life expectancies, even if they don't die in childbirth. It just strips your body of so much, uh, so many nutrients you need.
0: When did it come to your mind that I should really investigate this period of old age experienced by the Founding Fathers?
5: It probably doesn't hurt that I'm a Gen Xer watching my own parents and grandparents get older. But it also occurred to me that we're at this incredible global moment when the population worldwide is aging rapidly. And it struck me, you know, it's not the first time in history people have lived a very long time Historians have joked for a long time New England invented grandparents because in colonial New England it was finally healthy enough that people lived long enough not only to see their first grandchild born but to actually be an involved grandparent.
0: That is so interesting. Do they mean New England invented grandparenting for America or also compared to Europe?
5: Also compared to Europe as well as for America, Uh, 17th century New England is one of the healthiest places uh, in the Western world. Just because uh, the southern colonies tended to have lots of infectious disease, Um, New England didn't. And so people finally are well-fed enough and survive infectious diseases long enough to live into their 80s and to be hands-on grandparents.
0: Was there any sort of generational divide between the aging founding fathers and the leaders of the country who were younger coming up after them?
5: Absolutely. James Madison, when he's older, complains, young men tell me I'm wonderful until I utter a political opinion. Then they say I'm a doddering old man who can't remember anything. Compared to the people who came before them, these founding fathers and their generation are startlingly modern. Their concerns about getting old are very much the same ones we have. What is the biological reality of aging? How can I control it? Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to become somebody who's a burden on my family? Am I going to hurt Thomas Jefferson, in the end, has bowel troubles, and he's really embarrassed. He doesn't go out in public as much because he's worried about losing control of his bowels, and he he turns to opiates to help with the pain.
0: I didn't realize they had opiates.
5: They call it laudanum. They take it in in liquid form in drops. Um, And the team at Monticello who are working on Thomas Jefferson's retirement papers have guessed he might be taking up to 100 drops a day. This doctor said no more than 50. So, of course, like a lot of people, he's doubling what he's told to take. He thinks he's doing fine. But the way historians know is his grandchildren are writing to each other about it. And they don't say anything to their grandfather, but they're writing to each other. And they can see the damage and they think it's killing him. But he thinks it's just fine because he's worried about the pain.
0: Do you want to share with me some of the letters, especially between Jefferson and Adams, both of them former presidents now about the same age, right?
5: Yes, they have this extraordinary correspondence. They had been friends in the revolution, bitter political enemies, and then friends again, friends through letters. And John Adams writes Thomas Jefferson, I pity our good brother Madison, and he means James Madison. You and I have had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, though they have cost us grief, anxiety, often vexation, and sometimes humiliation. John Adams had a son who was an alcoholic who drank himself to death. He had a son who became president and was a terrible president. Uh, he had a son-in-law who was a wastrel who abandoned his daughter. So write all of these pains and yet the pleasures of having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. John Adams continues, it's been cheering to have them hovering about us. And I verily believe they have contributed largely to keep us alive. And here you see he both references the the reassurance that you'll leave something behind in this world. You'll leave children and grandchildren behind. Your line will continue. But also just young people keep us alive and energized. Company keeps us alive and energized. And he concludes, books cannot always expel and we... You know, you're still bored. You need people. You need young people. I therefore pity Brother Madison and especially his lady, uh, because James Madison never had children. And it's just this amazing moment where John Adams talks about the importance of grandchildren.
0: Isn't that remarkable? And it's it sounds like something we could have written today.
5: <laughs> yes, and I read it to my friends in my age group, and they're all like, "Yes," and they're my parents are begging me for grandchildren. And you think about how important this is to so many people.
0: You also discovered through their letters that they had a deep-seated fear of dementia. Can you share with me some of how they express that to one another?
5: Absolutely. John Adams actually becomes a little obsessed. He says he's terrified of dying at the top. He means the brain going. Um, And in this great letter, Thomas Jefferson responds to one of these fears. Thomas Jefferson writes John Adams, and this is a few years before they each die. And they're talking about a mutual acquaintance who's 93 years old. Charles Thompson still lives, cheerful, slender as a grasshopper, and so much without memory that he scarcely recognizes the members of his household. An intimate friend of his called on him, since it was difficult to make him recollect who he was, and sitting one hour, he told him the same story four times over. Is this life? It is at most but the life of a cabbage. When all our faculties have left, and assami debility and malaise left in their places, when the friends of our youth are all gone, and a generation has risen around us whom we know not, I have ever dreaded a doting old age. They say that Stark, who was 93 years old, could walk about his room. I am told you walk well and firmly. I can only reach my garden, and that with sensible fatigue. I ride, however, daily, but reading is my delight. And he concludes this letter in a way that he concludes a lot of letters at the end of his life. God bless you and give you health, strength, good spirits, and as much of life as you think worth having. So he stops wishing people a long life, and he starts wishing people a life as long as you wish for.
0: Does he say that because he's beginning to doubt how much long life he wants, or because, as with the 93-year-old, he'd seen some others and fears joining their condition?
5: He absolutely fears joining their condition, and he's beginning to think not all life is equally valuable, is equally enjoyable, and so he wishes people uh, not as long a life as God would have you want, as long a life as you would want. It's a kind of a contrast to a much older idea. Uh, Your lifespan is entirely in God's control and God's favor, and, and, and Jefferson is saying, I wish you, right, the lifespan you wish for even though they understand you don't have control over it. I wish for you the kind of life you wish. Had they read
0: much of old age in their books that caused them fear?
5: There's this fascination uh, with old age. Um, And the other thing I find really modern is there's this almost explosion of literature about how do you achieve longevity, medical advice, Um, not good medical advice, but medical advice. How do you achieve a very long life? They're also reading books of advice about what is it that people who've lived a really long time have done.
0: So what did they share with each other were tips on how to extend their lives?
5: Well, you'll appreciate this. They, of course, don't agree. Benjamin Franklin thinks you should bathe in warm water, but Thomas Jefferson gets up every morning and puts his feet into freezing cold water, and both are convinced this will allow them to lead a long, healthy life. Some medical writers suggest um, extreme calorie limitation. Some people say you should drink wine, and some people say uh, you should avoid alcohol at all costs. But what unites them is this belief that if you just do the right things, if you live the right way, you too can achieve a long life.
0: That's fascinating. Rebecca, thank you for talking with me today on With Good Reason.
5: Thank you. I
0: had a great time. Rebecca Brannon is a professor of history at James Madison University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System. Connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world. UVAhealth.com. The first part of today's With Good Reason show featured our new podcast series called American Descent. It's a co production of James Madison's Montpelier. The artwork for the podcast is by Carson McNamara, the music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to Price Thomas and Kendall Madigan at James Madison's Montpelier. Find the full series at montpelier.org or wherever you get your podcasts. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quance, Elliot Majerzyk, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Alison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Our intern is Adriana Gallo. I'm Sarah McConnell,